Uh, today, we are joined by Major Edwin Kissel, and I will let him introduce himself as far as uh, his career and his background with this topic and how he came to be interested in uh, solving the orbital debris problem. Over to you, sir. So I am a Air Force JAG. I've been on active duty for over 10 years now. And uh, my interest in the topic uh, came from several different aspects of my career. Um, I was assigned uh, previously within the space enterprise. And then following that, went to uh, George Washington University as part of the Air Force's LLM program. And I had an opportunity to study space law there, found it a fascinating subject. And it was right about the time that we were talking about the potential for what's going to happen with the Space Force. Are we going to be um, looking at it as a um, unified command like um, we have with U.S. Space Command? Is it going to be a core? Is it going to be a force? Um, and then following the LLM program, I had uh, an assignment with the Environmental Law Field Support Center, and I was working for both Air Force clients and Space Force clients on uh, various projects to include launch activities. And I saw an opportunity to apply my environmental law perspective, both academically and practically speaking, uh, to the orbital debris issue, because this is a major um, issue from an operational standpoint. And uh, this summer, I will be uh, taking a new assignment uh, back to Space Systems Command um, to re return to the space enterprise. So coming full circle. Great, yeah, and that uh, that interplay between the, uh, the space law uh, topic and the, I guess, just sort of space reality of orbital debris, and then your uh, your training in environmental law is what uh, really caught our attention with these uh, the proposals in your in your paper and your presentation. But before I get too far ahead of myself, uh, both of those the the paper that you wrote that was published a couple of years ago and the uh, presentation that you delivered for the advanced environmental law course recently uh, are how you how to use law as an instrument to solve the orbital debris problem. So um, before we jump into proposed solutions, uh, talk to me about this orbital debris problem, uh, starting with kind of the basics of what is orbital debris and what's the problem with it? Absolutely. So um, orbital debris is uh, the fancy term for space junk. So um, over the last 60 years, um, we've gone from, you know, the basics of exploring uh, space, launching the first satellites to now, um, as of the, the date of the article, there are about 7,500 satellites um, in orbit. Um, satellites are getting smaller. Um, orbit, especially in low Earth orbit, is getting more congested. Um, we're hearing about, for, for instance, the Starlink constellation. Um, which is launched about 10%. Um, I believe that one is going to be um, about 1,700 satellites. Um, we've got a, uh, so, so over time, space has gotten more congested. We've, got, we've also had 
collisions, by um, items in space. We've had items left behind from spacewalks. And all of these things um, that aren't supposed to be there, that aren't serving a purpose, they're, they're space junk. And we estimate that there are probably about 130 million pieces of uh, debris, space junk in orbit. And in low Earth orbit, things are, are circling the Earth at 18,000 miles an hour. So you have a lot of items uh, moving very quickly, and you it, it can cause substantial damage. So some of the um, uh, statistics are a a piece of debris that is up to um, one centimeter in diameter can cause critical damage to disable a satellite. Um, something that's larger than ten centimeters in diameter can shatter a satellite or spacecraft. And with our current technology, we can only track things and avoid them down to about five centimeters. So um, the, the orbital debris problem is essentially that we have a lot of space junk floating around with the potential to collide with satellite or other spacecraft and um, not only damage that satellite and um, also impede its mission, but every time you have a collision, it creates more and more uh, orbital debris. There was a NASA physicist in the 1970s, um, Dr. Don Kessler, and he um, came up with a theory that's called the Kessler syndrome, that essentially, if nothing is done about this, you have debris exponentially creating more debris, um, that then you cause certain areas within low Earth orbit to be um, unusable, which means we lose our access to the space domain. Um, and so if nothing is done about this, we have the, the military implications of not being able to um, carry out communications, satellite observation, um, and, and then um, position, navigation, timing, all these sort of things. And then from a civil society standpoint with, um, you know, today modern society is reliant on GPS, on satellite communications. Um, a lot of people subscribe to satellite radio. We have um, internet. Um, and so, if you lose access to certain regions of space where these services can no longer be uh, provided to civil society anymore, um, yet we're so reliant on them that then you kind of get into some apocalyptic scenarios. And the problem with um, orbital debris is that it stays around for a very long time. Um, and, and so uh, once the problem gets to a point where it's uncontrollable, then, uh, then we're really sunk. So that, that's the um, orbital debris problem and uh, why it's important and why we need to do uh, something about it before it gets out of hand. Yeah, well, that does sound like it could cause some pretty significant problems. 
which is probably why there are various organizations working on ways to clean it up practically, to send something into space that can remove the debris, right? So you, I know that's not the right. not the main thrust of your scholarship, but you did end up learning a good bit about where those uh, technologies are right now. So can you um, kind of tell us practically how this might look that uh, that an organization, be it a government or a private company, could clean some of this up? Certainly. So there are um, a couple different ways to look at it. So you can look at it from the debris removal standpoint, and you can look at it from the debris prevention standpoint. And so um, the debris removal standpoint, there are uh, several different efforts underway within uh, universities in the United States, um, as well as uh, in Europe. Um, the European Space Agency has a project, China has a project, and a lot of, and, and the idea behind these are you have um, satellites, they can come in various sizes, um, some are larger than others, and they can use um, grappling arms, um, they can use nets, they can use tethers um, to basically gather up um, debris in orbit, and then they either will take it down into the atmosphere to burn up, or uh, kick it out to what what's called a graveyard orbit, which is out of the way of um, every everything that's an active uh, satellite in low Earth orbit. Um, so that those are the technical solutions in play from a uh, debris removal standpoint. Um, the other things are um, from a um, debris prevention standpoint, and so. Um, there's a company in El Segundo, Millennium Space Systems, has developed this concept of the Terminator tape. And essentially, you, when a satellite reaches the end of its useful life, it deploys this uh, ribbon that acts as a sail to create drag and then bring the satellite down um, into to, to burn up in the atmosphere. Um, so there are certain concepts like that that are um, being um, looked at as well. So we'll, we'll probably see some more development uh, from a technical standpoint over the next few years. The main thing I'm looking at is, um, you know, the, the technical solutions are evolving. So we need the legal concepts to take care of this issue um, be developed as well. Right, exactly. So the uh, the technical stuff aside, your your research and writing has focused on how can we use the law to uh, to start fixing this problem? Which kind of begs one question: that is, okay, well, what law is there now, and why is it insufficient? So, can you kind of give us a an outline of what laws do apply in space right now, and why aren't those working well enough to fix this? So, there are. Um, first of all, there are a few international treaties that form the bedrock of space law. And there are some provisions that, that address this issue. Um, and then we look at, uh, in the U.S., there are um, domestic launch licensing requirements, and, and other nations in the European Space Agency um, have some provisions like this as well. Um, so first, I'll talk about the um, international treaties. So 
So we had the Outer Space Treaty um, was formed back in 1967. Um, this is a widely accepted treaty. We have 133 nations that have signed on to it. Um, the Outer Space Treaty Article 9 um, contains several different provisions. For instance, nations conducting activities in space need to um, uh, go about their business with due regard to the corresponding interests of other spacefaring parties. Um, they need to conduct exploration of space so as to avoid harmful contamination. Um, and then if you have, uh, you know, one country's not doing what they should be doing, then there's consultation provided as a remedy. Um, Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty talks about liability that each nation is internationally liable for damage to um, another nation or uh, entity, um, that country's um, space objects or components of space objects, which would cover orbital debris. Um, so there, there's these two articles in the Outer Space Treaty that talk about um, that could talk about this issue. However, the problem with the Outer Space Treaty is that the language is aspirational. You don't have an enforcement um, mechanism behind it. Um, if you were to have one country allege that another country is violating the treaty, um, the International Court of Justice is your forum to render decisions on treaty violations. However, um, they only provide an opinion. They cannot enforce their decisions. It goes to the UN Security Council, um, who has enforcement ability. However, um, if you try to, and, and as we're seeing unfold in the uh, Ukraine situation, for instance, if you try to um, enforce a International Court of Justice um, decision, you can't enforce it against a Security Council member, such as Russia or China, um, that has veto power. So in essence, violations of the Outer Space Treaty um, are, are not enforceable. Um, some interesting things to note are that um, the Article 8 does provide a reasonable liability standard. Um, now, as I mentioned, this was developed before the um, commercialization of space. So we, we look at the um, government parties as responsible for the activities of, of corporate entities within um, operating within that country. Um, and then the um, responsibility for um, activity in space falls on the either the country responsible for the launch or for procuring the launch of the um, space object, if you will. So that's the Outer Space Treaty. And then we have the Liability Convention uh, came about a few years later. Um, so that turns 50 uh, this year. And the Liability Convention has been signed on and accepted by 121 countries. Um, and there are two standards of liability that we see in 
the liability convention. So um, Article 3, we have the, the negligence standard for damages in space, and that is a tort negligence standard. So in the, in the event of damage caused elsewhere than on the, the earth um, to a space object of a launching state or um, persons on board the space object, um, the launching state is liable only if the damage is due to its fault or the fault of persons for whom it's responsible. So this, this reads as a as your standard um, tort negligence um, analysis, but you do have in, in terms of a you know looking at interpreting this provision from the perspective of different countries, you can have the potential for different results if it's analyzed under our English common law system or a uh, continental civil law um, tort standard. Um, and so your duty of care um, can be established through, um, we do have orbital debris mitigation standards um, that are published by the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs, um, as well as several different countries. So you, you have evidence of that that can act as a, um, a, a standard of practice within the space industry. Um, however, a lot of these orbital debris mitigation standards, actually all of them are expressly non-binding. Um, so that can create an issue when you're trying to prove whether or not there, there's a specific duty um, for a specific um, orbital debris mitigation requirement. And then uh, you have issue in terms of uh, quantifying damages. So, under the liability convention, you have um, liability for compensatory damages, such as um, the destruction of property from a collision, the loss of use of a satellite. Um, however, there is no liability provided for uh, what I will term the environmental damage. That is um, the cost to remediate the orbital debris cloud that was created um, by that collision. So um, while the, uh, the party whose satellite was harmed um, by the negligence of, of another um, can recover for uh, the damage they directly sustain, there's no way to, um, no mechanism here to require payment for the damage caused to the space environment by now we have tens of thousands of new pieces of orbital debris that need to be cleaned up. Um, some other issues with, with the liability convention are, um, so if you have a commercial uh, satellite that was destroyed in a collision and they're seeking compensation for that, that company has to go to its national government to assert a claim under the liability convention. And you could have um, an issue because of the way multinational corporations operate where the, um, the satellite that caused the damage may be owned by a company that's in a different country um, than the responsible launching state 
um, where the only relationship between the company at fault and the responsible launching state is the fact that, that that's where the, the satellite was launched. Um, so you, you can have issues of trying to bring the responsible party, um, the ultimate responsible party into a claim. Um, and then the liability convention um, doesn't guarantee that, that an actual party at fault will even ever be responsible for uh, damages caused. So you have jurisdictional issues um, that I talked about. And then um, there's the other big issue you have here is that there's no um, actual enforcement mechanism. So the liability convention provides for a claims commission to convene to hear the evidence and make a fault determination. However, the decision by the claims commission is specifically a, recommenda a recommendatory award. So it's not binding on any party unless those parties have expressly consented to a binding award. And why would they if they're the one at fault? So that's another big issue with the liability convention. So then we look at, well, is there customary international law that could um, play a part here? And, and unfortunately, we're not there yet. Um, because as I mentioned before, the current uh, orbital debris mitigation standards are expressly non-binding. So we don't have the widespread adoption, compliance, or legal enforcement that we need in order to establish um, debris mitigation standards as a matter of customary international law. Um, the closest that we can get it this point is um, probably an environmental law concept known as the uh, precautionary principle, which means that nations should avoid taking actions resulting in environmental harm without balancing the risks of harm against the benefits of the action and adopting mitigation measures. So um, that's about as close as we get with customary international law. Um, which is to say, not very close. <laughs> so what about, um, I understand there is, there's right now, there's some requirements um, placed on entities that want to launch things into space. And that, uh, and those requirements right now kind of, they kind of, they control some behavior on the, on the part of those launching parties. But, um, but those I take it are not uh, right now in a place where they would uh, start solving this. Can you tell us about those? Certainly. So you do have um, within the United States, um, within Europe, um, in other countries, you have launch licensing requirements. And so um, in the United States, for instance, a, a launching entity has to agree to um, certain orbital debris mitigation uh, practices in order to get their launch license. Um, and so you have a launch license, you have, um, uh, if it's a communication satellite using uh, bandwidth, you have the um, Federal Communications uh, Commission operators um, permit. Um, you could have uh, for like a weather satellite, it could be a NOAA permit. 
So um, there are certain um, there are certain domestic requirements um, from law and regulation that can be placed on satellite um, launch entities and operators um, within the United States. The, the main issue you're going to run into here is inconsistency. So while an American company is held to one standard, um, a European company will be held to a, a albeit similar but slightly different standard. Um, but then when you look at China, they're not going to have the same level of um, debris mitigation commitments um, that, that you see. Um, and, and so you have um, inconsistent requirements across different space actors, and there's no international enforcement mechanism um, if, if one person's not following the set of rules that they're supposed to. Gotcha. So you use the term enforcement mechanism a whole lot when you're discussing what currently exists. So it sounds like what rules there are would are virtually impossible to actually enforce. So they're not really changing any behavior at the moment. So as as of right now, the space problem remains kind of unsolved, at least from a law and policy standpoint. So what um, what kind of proposals did you come up with that the law could address uh, to, to start things heading in the right direction here? So my main proposal is looking at the American concept of the um, Superfund statute. It's the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. And this is a statute that applies to cleanup of industrial waste contamination uh, within the United States. And I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but some of the other um, proposals that I've thought about, like to do um, some further research into. Um, so development of um, new treaties, probably not likely at this point. Um, we don't have uh, an international appetite for um, overhaul of the Outer Space Treaty or creation of any new treaties. Um, I think that current events in the world show that uh, countries are more um, diverging from one another rather than seeking to cooperate. Um, what you could see are uh, trade agreement rules um, where like-minded uh, nations can enter into um, trade agreements to try to in establish uh, customary international law. And then um, international commercial arbitration um, is, in terms of enforcement, that would be um, the ideal mechanism here because um, it's flexible. Your venue can be anywhere in the world. You can choose, you know, the, the parties to arbitration can choose the law that will apply. Um, most arbitration is done uh, under English law. Uh, they can adapt rules um, based on the needs of the hearing. For instance, the Permanent Court of Arbitration um, has provided a set of draft rules that parties can use um, for disputes in, in outer space. Um, and there are, within the space arena, there are a couple of conventions uh, or a couple of different organizations that have 
um, adopted international commercial arbitration for resolving disputes already. Um, and so what I would do is, is pair that with the um, a super fund type um, statute for space. And um, so with the uh, with, with the, the Superfund statute, the federal government created a trust fund, and that trust fund was initially created um, or funded by taxes on petroleum and chemical companies. And the government can use that fund to, when you have industrial waste contamination, uh, the government can orchestrate a cleanup response and a restoration response to that site, um, and then sort out the liability among potentially responsible parties for creating that contamination. So on the back end, the Superfund gets um, reimbursed for the response costs from the um, responsible parties. So when you're looking at liability under the Superfund, you have a broad definition of liable parties. So this is um, uh, anyone who's owned or operated a particular site that's being cleaned up, um, hazardous substance disposal facility from that site, um, or rangers or transporters of hazardous substances uh, to or from that site, they can all be potentially responsible um, under a scheme of joint and several liability um, for cleanup costs. Additionally, the Superfund has broad reach in terms of retroactive liability. So if the government is undertaking cleanup of a site where the contamination was created prior to the um, enactment of the, the Superfund statute, then um, those parties are still responsible. Um, and so it's up to the parties to sort out amongst themselves um, who, who's most at fault and, and contribute um, to the, the uh, reimbursement of the trust fund accordingly. So in, in theory, hypothetically, this might look like uh, some kind of collision uh, creating debris and, and some international organization being able to initiate and fund the cleanup of that debris without regard in the short term to who actually caused it or would ultimately be liable and then then seek um, reimbursement into that super fund from whoever is determined to be a liable party. Is that about it? Yes, yeah, so that, that, that's the gist of the idea. Um, so you, so a, a CERCLA super fund analog for space um, would enable the cleanup um, body to recover the, the cost of the um, debris remedi remediation from the parties at fault. Um, in some cir circumstances, it may be difficult to prove um, who is liable, especially when you're looking at smaller pieces of debris that we don't, we don't know necessarily where all of those originated. Um, but another thing, and, and what you see with the um, Superfund statute in the United States is that um, it causes 
industry that may potentially create, um, you know, industrial waste contamination uh, to purchase insurance in the event that a, a cleanup is required and they are potentially at fault. Um, you have a, an, an insurance forum that um, would reimburse those costs and, and cover any uh, liability on the part of the company. So you could see um, potentially uh, orbital debris mitigation insurance developed if we had this kind of system in space, um, because the current insurance requirements uh, are that uh, you, you have to maintain insurance for the launch plus the first 30 days of operation. And this, um, if, if you end up having or developing a liability scheme that covers the satellite's entire life cycle, um, and then some, if it's a defunct satellite that's still up there, um, then it would create a requirement for satellite owners and operators to um, either obtain insurance uh, to cover the collision risk or to, uh, to self-insure understanding the liability that comes with that. Um, and then if you paired something like this with international commercial arbitration, um, where satellite owners and operators have um, are, are required to agree to arbitration of um, claims against them in order to obtain a launch license. And, and that was an idea that comes from uh, Professor Henry Hertzfeld. He's the space law professor at, at George Washington University. Um, you could really start with a um, U.S.-based effort that applies to uh, launch entities within the U.S. And then if other nations decide to sign on to this, well, then all of a sudden you have a binding international arbitration system between the countries that have agreed uh, that, that are requiring that of um, satellite owners and operators within those countries. And then conceivably flowing out from that, you could end up with customary international law so that even somebody who hadn't affirmatively agreed to abide by those might be forced to, right? That, that's correct, yeah. That, that would be the, the ultimate idea is, um, you know, you create a... a you create binding orbital debris mitigation standards. So I, I got to think that there, there are some uh, criticisms of how these systems work, whether the proposal to apply them to space or even just how they work now. So what are, what are some of the, the gaps that might need to be shorn up uh, if we were to use this, uh, this kind of CERCLA model plus uh, arbitration that, that you see from where you sit now? Um, so if you have the liability response system, you really need a, um, you know, mandatory preventative measures to be truly effective. So um, orbital debris mitigation standards need to be become expressly binding in, in order to be truly effective. I, I will say that, you know, 
the vast majority of operators in space follow the rules, um, but you do have a, a, a few um, who don't. And for, for instance, um, in 2007, uh, China launched a anti-satellite missile test um, that created huge cloud of, of orbital debris and it's dispersed all over low Earth orbit. Um, you know, so you, you have some actors that, you know, these things aren't binding, they're not going to follow them. Um, they're, they're going to do what suits their, um, their wishes. So, um, and then the main shortcoming to, um, or, or the main obstacle to my proposal is, okay, how do you take this and make it truly effective? And so it's, it would be a long process of, um, you know, as Professor Hertzfeld suggested, you have to start it probably with, um, as a domestic initiative, um, applying to launch entities within the US or another country that is interested in doing this. And um, and so at that, at that point, it's not quite enforceable because you don't have anyone else on, on the other side agreeing to arbitrate. Um, so then it's kind of, it, it would require a snowball effect for others to decide this is a good thing and we're going to do this um, for, companies launching from our country um, b before, you, so it, it would take a while to create a um, binding international scheme um, because frankly, there, there's, no, uh, there's no appetite to address this through a treaty right now. So it, it, it's certainly an, an issue of making it enforceable and um, getting en enough folks to Sign on, and it would become customary international law for those who don't want to participate. Yeah, it does sound like uh, sounds like it needs to needs to kind of start small and grow, which I guess is is an issue because all during that time uh, there are uh, at least the potential for continuous amounts of debris to be uh, created out there. So uh, that. That's that's fascinating. Um, is there uh, anything else you'd like to leave us with before we uh, wrap up, sir? Um, so some other interesting things that are happening right now is um, within the realm of the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires the federal government to um, analyze the environmental impacts of um, any major federal actions such as you know, issuing a permit. And um, so the human environment is currently considered a terrestrial concept. Um, but when we're looking at, for instance, in the Air Force uh, of actions changing the boundaries of airspace, the, the FAA and the Department of the Air Force um, look at those airspace changes and, uh, as environmental um, effects. So could we um, consider human inhabited space, such as the International Space Station's orbit, um, to be part of the human environment? There's a, a current case that I want to point out, and this is 
Um, Viasat, which is a uh, satellite internet provider operating in uh, geosynchronous orbit um, versus the FCC, and they were challenging the FCC grant of a um, operator's permit to Starlink, um, alleging that because of the vast number of Starlink satellites being launched, um, the, the FCC should have done environmental analysis on that because of the potential for um, nighttime light pollution by, by this large Starlink constellation. So the uh, Federal Communications Commission applied a categorical exclusion from analysis um, to the, the Starlink permit uh, because it's a commercial satellite project. Um, so that that is pending litigation that uh, we'll see um, how that uh, resolves in the next couple of years. But uh, the, the National Environmental Policy Act could be another um, interesting area to watch um, when it comes to um, permits for for uh, companies to operate in space. So if that sort of NEPA involvement does become uh, more required for anything that requires a permit how would how could that look what could it look like say if the if the fcc loses and the court says no you should have done what viasat uh is claiming you should have done how could that look in the future and what would it change about um, the possibility of debris mitigation so immediately in that case if it goes the direction of Viasat, um, then the FCC would have to go back and do environmental analysis of the Starlink constellation. Um, as to the specific issue raised of um, the size of the satellite constellation creating light pollution at night. Um, however, if you have some regulatory or statutory changes made to NEPA, then you could start to see um, orbital debris creation and mitigation as a um, an issue that would have to be analyzed um, in terms of launch and, and operating permits. So uh, that, that could be yet another way to um, impose mitigation standards. Um, I, I don't know if it would really get much farther though um, in terms of American um, American companies that are launching or operating satellites in space because of the, the licensing requirements um, that, that are already in place. Gotcha. So this wouldn't necessarily be um, a big step toward global cooperation for mitigating the no. No, we, we really need, um, you know, we, we'd really need some kind of global, we, we would need some kind of international system that could um, coordinate the um, debris remediation response to collisions and um, a way to enforce liability for the costs incurred um, from cleanup. Gotcha. And with that, sir, what 
what uh, parting thoughts do you have on here? We really appreciate your uh, coming on and talking to us about uh, this orbital debris problem, where it's kind of going and how it happened and what can be done about it and how, and more, more importantly, how we can bring the law to bear to start solving it. So uh, on top of all of that really great information, uh, what, what else do you got for us, sir? So parting, parting thought I have is um, looking at, you know, why is this important? Um, and from a operational perspective, when you're looking at, for instance, the um, predators and the reefer um, aircraft that the Air Force operates, and in order to carry out, for those aircraft to carry out their mission and engage in reconnaissance or put bombs on target, they need to um, be able to use a uh, satellite to communicate with the ground station that's controlling the aircraft. If that satellite, for some reason, um, can't operate in a certain area or it gets taken out because of uh, a debris cloud or a collision with another satellite, then um, you have an issue where that aircraft is taken offline and it can't accomplish its mission. So in order to for the Air Force to carry out um, its mission on Earth, we need to make sure that we have access to the space domain um, so that our, our satellites that we need can operate. And so that, that's the importance that this issue has uh, from an operational perspective. Yeah, that sounds pretty crucial. Yes, uh, absolutely. So I, I definitely enjoyed uh, researching in this area and uh, I do look forward to um, continuing to look at ways to apply an environmental law perspective to uh, space issues. And um, I want to thank you, uh, Captain Hedden, for uh, your time today and for the JAG School uh, for uh, hosting this podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, sir. We appreciate you stopping by. for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil slash podcasts. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.